The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. We bring the week to an end, close it with a song, wrapping it up with me is Mike Vanderbilt of a great many things, some of those being the Windy City Double Features and Halloweenies podcast coming back this month in a week or two. Mike, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Always All right. A pleasure. Uh, I Can't Take It by Cheap Trick is the second single from their 1983 album, Next Position, Please, uh, their seventh album. It also featured the title track "Dancing the Night Away." Title track. Ah, it also featured the title track and "Dancing the Night Away." The song didn't chart, but the album peaked at number sixty-one of the Billboard Hot One Hundred. Produced by Todd Rundgren, the music video was directed by Mark Rezica, who had done tons of music videos for like Heart, Ray Parker Jr., Quiet Riot, Winger, Cinderella, Joan Jett, The Black Hearts. He did a Spinal Tap video for Bitch School, and I, my favorite footnote to him wrote an episode of erotic confessions in 1998. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Uh, I love that uh, Ray Parker jr. Video for, I still can't get over loving you mm-hmm. from 83, which we should maybe do that in an episode because it's the best song about stalking and possibly wanting to kill your girlfriend. Oh, wow. Like it sounds very, if you listen to the tone of the song, it's very much mm-hmm. like, 80s pop R&B, pop rock R&B, like it's cool. So, but like it gets really dark towards like the last, uh, the last verse. It's uh, it's truly you have to has to be heard to be believed. But uh, definitely a cool tune. Big fan. Uh, of everybody Parker only you know the, Ray Parker Jr. Oh, Ghostbusters! Like there's so much more lore to Ray oh, Parker Jr. He was a big part of the that what became known as the yacht rock scene. Thanks yeah. to my buddies on the yacht rock podcast. And this Mark Razica also directed the Holiday Road video. For Lindsay oh, yeah. Buckingham. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so a big career directing videos. Yeah. Pretty cool video here. It's kind of a uh kind I, of a new wavy take on uh Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I would say. not the not the biggest. So I selected because I, I wanted to pick Chip Trick for uh, Cheap Trick for you on this show. But going through the videos of some of the more notable cheap trick songs, like not a lot to chew on. There's a lot of live performances for some of the yeah, biggest you know songs. I, they, for as interesting as they looked, I mean, Cheap Trick obviously had a great look. The two pretty boys, the two weirdos, mm-hmm. their videos were very much, and I think this is a testament to them, was just the band performing because yeah. they felt like that's when they were at their best. They were just best on a stage. So it was usually just them in some cool clothes or a cool set performing the single. Yeah. Uh, but this one has a little bit more artistic flair to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this one had something going on. And, you know, it's funny, like the live performance, those music videos when I was a kid, the just the live performance ones that were straight up, those weren't my favorite videos. And I was like, who likes this? Like, did they just, they ran out of money and here's our right. single. Here's, I, I guess on the show, Press Maxson, who's the week before you here, uh, and he's been on 
before when we talked music videos, he liked the live performance ones better than story music videos because he likes seeing the energy of the band. He likes seeing their play. Like he preferred that. I think I'm with story him. Stuff. I think I'm with him that definitely now as I got older, because a lot of the times, particularly in the early days, you got to figure this video comes out in November of 83. So yeah, MTV is not that old. Yeah. The beginning of MTV. And a lot of those early videos were simply just kind of performance style videos. A good example of that, I think, are the music videos that the shoes did. Another Illinois band kind of out of the same scene as Cheap Trick, where it was just like they would shoot a bunch of them in a room mm-hmm. for a day. And then they had something to play. But sometimes the band looks out of their element when they have to sort of act or put on a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Asking a lot. And you'd of expect them. Cheap Trick to do a lot to be very good at that. But I think they're just you know, there's better when they're standard or playing their instruments. So I agree with your buddy. OK, you say about that. There, there you go. This, I- this song has an interesting history in Cheap okay. Trick's history because so. This was the second single. So the Dancing the Night Away, which was the first single, was a cover of a Motors tune that the label kind of foisted on him. So I Can't Take It is credited to Robin Zander. Now, we have to go back to 1980 for the recording of All Shook Up for this story. Okay. All Shook Up is a very weird cheap trick record, I think. It's uh, produced by George Martin. So you'd expect it to sound more like the Beatles. Right. And it, it does. But it sounds like where I think the Beatles would have ended up if they kept going. Because Cheap, oh, okay. Trick o- Cheap Trick's often referred to as the Midwest Beatles. But uh, it, uh, George Martin didn't record backup vocals on this one. There's The songs are darker, closer in tone to their first record. I feel like it's the closest thing they came to recapturing that weirdness of that first record. And the band was in a uh, state of flux because they were fighting with bass player Tom Peterson. Uh, Tom Peterson eventually le- ends up leaving the band. According to Tom, he was basically told before they were going on tour, don't show up. Uh, <laughs> Rick Nielsen has been quoted as saying uh, he left due to medical reasons. He made the rest of the band sick. Oh. And it sounds like Rick Nielsen's just kind of a a, a, a real treat to deal with. Uh, not a treat. I, he, he sounds like he'd be kind of prickly because Peterson oh, yeah. would end up coming back in 1988 for the Lap of Luxury album, and that would give them The Flame, which was their only number one hit. Mm-hmm. So in the interim, they, re- they recruit this guy, Pete Kamita. Pete Kamita is a guitar player from around Chicagoland who had played with John Brand, whose name's going to come up later, in a band called... USSR, and I think they may have been in the thumbs together with Cliff Johnson of Off Broadway. I'm gonna if if someone's gonna point out I'm wrong, I'm gonna be very disappointed in myself because I'm going at this one <laughs> Sam's notes, and I like to think of myself as kind of an expert on Chicago bar band history from this era. So they require Pete Kamita. They hire Pete Kamita, and it's funny about whenever they got a replacement for Tom Peterson, because they had two replacements for Tom Peterson. He always sort of looked like Tom Peterson. Mm. He would always get a dark-haired dude, you know, skinny, and he you know he would have right. to play the twelve-string bass because that was Tom Peterson's signature instrument post heaven tonight in 78 so Pete Kamita joins the band Pete Kamita brings with him a song called uh reach out that he co-wrote with Bob James which ends up on the heavy metal soundtrack which is recorded by Roy Thomas Baker and uh Pete Kamita tours with him Pete Kamita ends up appearing on Saturday Night Live with him which is you know notable because Cheap Trick only appeared on SNL once they were promoting the all shook up record despite Tom playing on it Pete Kamita is on the show so Pete Kamita is trouble, though. Pete Kamita is a party boy, party dog, mm, as they say. Okay. And, um, eventually, it doesn't work out. 
So they bring on John Brand. They bring on John Brand during the recording of the previous album, The Next Position, Please, one on one from 1982. So John Brand only plays like on three tracks on that record. Uh, Rick Nielsen played bass for the most of the record because Rick Nielsen's just one of these guys. He can he can play anything and he can do it pretty well. So I can't take it is credited to Robin Zander. According to Pete Kamita, that's a Pete Kamita tune that him and Zander started working on. According to Kamita, let me I will go to my notes on this because I want to get the story straight. According to Kamita, it was a song. Uh, it was a combination of two songs. I can't take it and moving on, which uh, he had written long before he joined the band in 80. And so Xander ended up, uh, according to Kamita, Xander ended up taking the song, taking credit for it. And even Kamita ran into him, says, oh, that's cool what you did with that song. And he's like, what are mm-hmm. you talking about? That's my song. Um uh, <laughs> So we don't know. Uh, oh. Kamita says to this day that he he co-wrote that song. Even Bunny Carlos says that Pete may have came up with the riff, but he didn't write that song. Robin wrote that song and he'd been working on it for years. Controversy. Jeez. Yeah, there are uh, as much as I love cheap trick. There's a lot of backfighting even to this day over money and mm. credit on songs and stuff. Cause Bunny Carlos is no longer with the band and Dax Nielsen is playing drums with him. So yeah, an interesting song. Great tune though. Uh, yeah, you don't a cool see tune. a lot of, you don't see a lot of songs where it's J- Robin Zander's kind of solely credited as the writer. Mm-hmm. Like usually it's Neil Rick Nielsen or a combination of any of them. Um, I was talking to uh, Mark Radice, who was a song doctor on uh, their record, their 1985 record. Uh standing on the edge and he was saying that uh the lyrics for the there's their single off that one uh oh my god i'm having a moment tonight it's you mm-hmm. like they just kind of came up with the riff and robin zander just kind of started mumbling like nonsense lyrics and it just came to him so i think he's just kind of that talented of a songwriter right so it's interesting this is like one that it seems mm-hmm. that he actually worked on for years hmm. the opus and, yeah, and uh, there's a really cool uh, appearance where they're promoting this album uh, on. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's Alan Thicke's old late night talk show, which uh, I discovered it was a thing when I was looking up this. Thing. I was like, oh, and they perform. <laughs> I can't take it, which is a great tune, but they also perform probably my favorite so- song on Next Edition, Please, Borderline. OK, and I always like the live performances of the songs on this one better than the studio, I think. I mean, in general, Cheap Trick is usually better live. There's a little more oomph. I always Which feel weren't like, plenty of their singles released as live ones, too. Well, their big, their big breakthrough is the single I Want You to Want Me off mm-hmm. the Budokan record. And right. the whole story with that record was it was an import record. It was only intended for Japan. They started importing it into uh, a record store in like New York. Somebody, it started to take off. So mm-hmm. then Epic decided to release it in the States, even though the band was never really happy with those performances. Oh, wow. Okay. So, the Todd Runger production on this one is I love it and I hate it at the same time. Cause on one time it's very interesting in that there it's, it has a very distinctive tone, a lot of chorus pedals. He used a rock man on this Tom Schultz rock man, which gives it a distinct, the guitar is a distinct tone to it. But on the other hand, I feel like these songs maybe would come alive more with more of that big live cheap trick sound. And I think you get a little bit of that on the thick of the night performances. Gotcha. And uh, I can't take it. The best performance I've ever heard of this is on their 1999 or is it 98, 99 live album music for hangovers, which was recorded over five nights at the Metro in June of 1997, I believe, or 97 or 98, where they did the first 
three albums plus Budokan in their entirety, which I mean, a lot of bands do that now, but they were one of the first. Oh, wow. Okay. Did, did I speak enough there? Did, did, did... That's good stuff. <laughs> uh, that's good stuff. I know. I, I like I casually, casually like Cheap Trick. Uh, I, I know the big songs and everything like that, um, but I, they were never I don't know. They were like a huge presence for me as I was going through my musical journey of my teens. I don't know where why it didn't stop there, but it's just how it happened. I mean, but if anybody there, likes, yeah, if anybody likes hearing me talk about cheap trick, you might want to stay tuned because April 1st, you might see, uh, it won't be a trick. It won't be cheap, but there might be a surprise for you. There you go. And, uh, yeah, he's not lying about that. I'll tell you that the, the video here, um, you mentioned Alice in Wonderland esque thing with it. It's, it very much has that even down to the off with the head at the end. Right. But it's not, it's not like an exact like no, rip off right. of it, but I feel like that's probably, I can't find many interviews about uh, the shooting of this video. I've had many of most of the cheap tricks videos, but I, I think that mm-hmm. definitely has to be an influence on the concept of this. There's something to do with, I, I don't know, maybe cold feet getting married being a, a part of this. Cause there's, it, it takes place. So there's a, there's a, there's a bride in an attic with a cake and she's taking, I wish I could find out who the bride was too. I couldn't I wish, find that either. I was I, like, I'm sure she's yeah. a model and hopefully maybe somebody who listens to this may be able to tell, because like I said, there's the cat, there's not many casual cheap trick fans. The ones who like that band know every little thing inside and out. So somebody's going to be able to uh, fill that in for us. There's a history of women used in music videos prominently that no one has any idea where they're at now or what they're doing or where they were. Like there, I, I found this uh, doing these music video uh, things as a part of my show. Like, I'm like, Oh, who's that? You know, she's good looking. Who the heck's that? Uh, and well, yeah, she's nothing, a, and nothing. The bride, the, the bride in this video is indeed a, a stone cold, cold Fox. Yeah. There's no, but there's plenty of women in these videos. That I would go through like, I don't know who they are. There's nothing there. They're, not, and not everybody's Tawny Katane, right? Yeah. Music videos and the detailed information of production of music videos is thin. Like it's, I'm always impressed when I can find out who mm-hmm. the director is, especially if there's like an Internet Movie Database credit, because you'll yeah. see it sometimes under filed under short. And those are always aren't complete either. They're they're Absolutely. rundowns of of their with music videos. People are like, oh, the IMDb false stuff about movies. The dis the, the filmographies and stuff are pretty freaking accurate nowadays. Like, let's let's get off. I, go to the trivia section. Okay, the trivia section, wishy washy. But the the hard data on movies, good music videos. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, that's... we need to work because even uh, IMDb does really good on adult movies too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like they uh, they have all the the actors and the. Their real names, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was always under a pseudonym. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the, yeah, there's this bride. She's she's got a cake, and on top, the cake toppers are voodoo dolls. The groom is running away. It's some. And the groom kind of is fish- portrayed by Robin Zander, who uh, mm-hmm. this is my. I think this is my favorite era of Robin Zander. I think he's the hottest here. His hair's a little bit shorter, and they got him in a cool dark suit with a mm-hmm. white shirt, no tie. I'm, I like his look from the next vision, please. One on one era. Yeah. Uh, he 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 winds up in a den of like the rest of the band, and you got Bunny Carlos, John, and this is where John, this is John Brandt's first record where mm-hmm. he plays on it as the bass. Tom Peterson type, John right. Brand. Yeah, and so this is them, you know, bacheloring it out here. So is that the bachelor party? Is that trying to like see what he's giving up? 
she's poking him. It's hurting with the the thing, and then he goes through like a, or the bachelor party's through the phone booth. It's it's it makes sense somehow. Well, everything, I, every everything with cheap trick has to be the best things with cheap trick are always a little bit weird. Uh, yeah. I think that's uh, where it is. That's one of the strengths of this video because after the bachelor party, they end up hunting him yes yeah they, there's like a blue room with smoke it's like really cool smoke effects in this area but he turns into like a feathered creature and runs as they're, they're shooting ducks and then they turn to him and he becomes like one and they're shooting him and he like falls in this like pit of women like there's women in a pit and he lands and they're a bunch of big voodoo dolls and he finds a ladder which gets him to the attic and you sound like a psychopath describing this video i know i know <laughs> I'm, this is only this is what I saw. And he takes the bride to, uh, topper and bites the head off. And she either laughs or orgasms. I she, can't tell. Or, or she kind of scoffs tell. at him a little bit like, ha. Almost like so maybe uh, to your point, maybe it's like, I got you. Yeah. Like, I got him. Here I am. We're going to get married. Or maybe it's about like the, yeah, the cold feet or the last thoughts of, you know, you've kind of inspired me. I kind of want to track down because I'm sure I could Mark Razak because I think he's still with us mm -hmm. and maybe uh, ask him what is going on with this video. I need a minute by minute rundown of play by play. Tell me where, where was your head during this? Who wrote you know it? And as much as I love doing interviews like that, most of the times when you get these guys, it's usually just the answers. Yeah, we just thought it'd be cool. That's a lot of things. There's so many things. And I always got in trouble in college and high school with English uh, and literature <laughs> things because they're like the author. I like, what if they just like meant that? And you were like taking some deep connotation and it was just some bullshit thing. And, but you know, I have grown to see how the world you live in affects without you knowing it. So yes, those deeper connotations are there, whether they were intended or not, but they always act like, he intended this subtext. It's like that might have accidentally came out and you're reading. <laughs> well, that's sometimes what I thought about, like I, don't know, I was in film school. It's like, did they really set up everything in this shot to do that? But then you wonder how much of it is subconscious. But that's what's so great about, mm -hmm. you know, podcasts like yours. When we get to yeah, talk art. about our own yeah. interpretations of it. And uh, the, our episode uh, where we talked to, uh, about Transformers, the movie. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned you've, that Godfather. Yeah. Connection. Yeah. Like, I would my brain didn't work like that. I would have never saw that, but I think it's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. And I, I don't think like, you know, you know, there's the whole thing with it. Like when the artist, once you release it, it's not yours anymore. It's theirs. That's like, the artist. I'm a I'm I'm a big yeah. fan of that concept. But. I, I, I think it's a, somewhere in between of the artist going, here's what I did. Tell me what you think. What would you get from this? And you're allowed to have that and be like, oh, that's interesting. But it still kind of belongs to the artist. But well, um, but when you're an artist, like somebody like David Lynch, who ain't going to tell you. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you have to just accept like, well, this is what I think it is. And, and he loves if, that. And you need to write that with when you write that piece. When you do that podcast, you need to say that with authority. Mm -hmm. uh, no, this is what it means. And even if that's just what it means to you, you might, uh, you know, somebody else might take away from that. And, you know, in the end, just think it's really cool. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes trippy shit was just there to be trippy. Like that's. That's sometimes what it is. There's no. And it's a pretty trippy video, but it's not a lot of style. It's very cool. Um, I, I don't know where it falls in the in the air, that era of music videos. If it's if it's I don't know if it's innovative or if it's trying or if it's trying to catch up mm -hmm. with what's going on in music videos at that time. You know, it kind of feels like the prototype for what would become a Tom Petty video later down the line. 
Ah, good call. Good call. You know, it kind of feels like this is the birth of like something Tom Petty would take it and run with and do a lot. Um, he was, could, I, I believe him to be a fan of cheap trick. It would make sense. Yeah. And, and he had an, he had an aesthetic of, uh, you know, the mad hatter for a bit. Uh, that's his, true. His, yeah, he even did video. I mean, he did videos directly doing that. And then he just dressed like that was what he was. <laughs> he was at yeah, the top hat did become part of his wardrobe. And, yeah. um, uh, the, Robin Zander wears a top hat now. And mm-hmm. Tom Peterson went through a period in the late eighties where he was wearing the top hat. I, I think, go. you know, magicians and musicians are probably the two people that can get away with top cat, uh, top hats. True. True. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this is, a, I mean, it's a fun video. It's, uh, this is the first time me seeing this video. Uh, yeah, I never saw, I mean, I would have been, obviously we would have been both too young mm-hmm. to see this when it was in rotation on MTV and obviously never got put back in rotation or looked back upon like, no, oh, they released a, in 1990 cheap chick released a video comp called every trick in the book that had all their videos mm. uh, listed up to in there. And like you said that for like up until, up until she's tight uh, in 83, it's all performance stuff. And then they did, you know, they didn't really do anything like, like I said, like you said, though, they never really did anything really kind of wild or memorable. It was just usually them playing in a room, which was cool. One of their more interesting ones, like and, uh, you should watch it if you watch all their music videos is if you need me, because they essentially re-edit footage from all the music videos they had done up to that time mm-hmm. hmm. to make it look like they're singing that song. Oh, that's really cool. And I'm that's one I'm totally interested. Like, how did they pull it off? Because I don't think they went back and reshot stuff mm-hmm. i don't know if the because they there is a new video that's kind of wrapped around but it's pretty cool seeing them these different eras of cheap tricks singing along and they do a similar thing with the video for lights out when the lights are out uh, a slade cover from their album the latest that i think came out in 09 gotcha that's interesting i've I gotta check that out with the putting that together that's that sounds like a project that you would see on like a viral video nowadays rather than right, being right, an actual right. professional thing and uh, the killers did something similar where they shot a video for uh another girl where they kind of and they they just went they just recreated the sets where brandon flowers is walking through like sets and like it's every there's a reference to all their music videos they have done up to that point mm-hmm. that i i think those those two music videos are kind of cousins i feel like People indulge their history with that stuff. That's really cool. Yeah, it's like, you know, this is us up until now. And now this is the next chapter. Kind of like when Van Halen did that Greatest Hits Volume 1. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we ever got a Greatest Hits Volume 2 out of them. Uh, we got Best of Both Worlds, I believe, was the next thing they did. It was a Greatest Hits, but they didn't call it Volume 2. Well, because yeah, it was like the it was probably tracks in the first one and Sammy Hagar era. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't it, remember if volume one had well Sammy volume Hager. one with Sammy Hagar. They missed a lot of stuff on that first volume one. Like uh because they had the two new tunes that David Lee Roth came back and recorded mm-hmm. when he rejoined the band. And I had that album, yep. And then instantly irritated uh everybody. Like he was he was fired as quickly as he was hired back. Janie's crying wasn't on that album, but fuck those new tunes were Magic Man and whatever <laughs> the hell the other one was. And I will tell you, I was one of the like seven people back then that bought Van Halen three, Gary Sharon era. Look, Van I've, Halen. Listened, I've listened to Van Halen three. It, it It's not up to par with I'm a I'm a Sammy Hagar fan. Mm-hmm. I like his era of Van Halen. Yeah, it's not bad. I, I, 
I think the songwriting is just a little bit. I, I don't want to say better. It's a little bit slicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I it's like polished. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the Sharon stuff is fine. It's just ultimately forgettable. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, you're coming into Van Halen after David Lee Roth and Van ha- and uh, Sammy Hagar. Like that's you're you're. <sighs> God bless you for trying. I and they were they were trying to stuff. hop into the I remember the TRL era was yeah. then and Van Halen didn't really fit with that, but they they wanted the Sharon era to jump in there with that. I remember well, them playing on TRL and stuff. Bringing a red around to Cheap Trick, like Cheap Tricks, uh when you look at their career, because look, they played arenas. They're not they're not uh they're not like an underground act, but they're still relatively cultish. Because they they only had the one top ten hit with the flame, which they didn't mm-hmm. even write, and they never really had any. They they always had trouble charting, and I always if you look at the they're always like they always feel like they're six years to a not six years six months to a year behind on production or what they're trying to do. Like they're always just trying to chase something production wise because they always sound like cheap trick. They've never changed the sound of their band, but like the Doctor record, which is mm-hmm. notoriously known as their keyboard record which I like because it's a little bit weird, but it feels like it's about two years too late. Gotcha. Like in those songs without all that production, when you play them live, they just sound like great cheap trick songs, but there's a cocoon around it when you listen to the album. Well, just like Smashing Pumpkins, the door probably should have came out after Radiohead, OK Computer and stuff. And people might have been more right accepting of what was going on there rather than them being first. Absolutely. Uh, Sometimes you forget the innovator. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to go back and you have to go back and, you know, give them props. But I mean, I think you and I just being pop culture guys, we it's something like we were. Ta- I don't know what we were talking about on the Transformers episode. I think we were talking about something with your daughter where it's like I fi- yeah. I try not to get mad about whatever the current youth thing is, mm-hmm. because in 10 years, I might realize that it was pretty good. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of shit that doesn't age well. That mm-hmm. you say 10 years down the line, like, oh, I was right not to like that stuff. But I, I, I try very hard, despite, you know, the joke on Halloween is being that I don't watch horror movies made after 1997. <laughs> the, the only the only the only thing I ever listen to is Cheap Trick, which, you know, there's probably about like 60 percent truth to that. Is <laughs> that I, I do want to hear new stuff and see new stuff that mm-hmm. I like. And I try not to go into it with a bad attitude. But it's just so hard to do when you got to see so much cool stuff in 20 years and when you know stuff like you and i the way we know stuff when you realize something's just derivative yeah or we've seen this before and i don't always need originality i just need to go back to our transformers episode i go. just want it to be cool well also to the point of the the new stuff or whatever ideally that new stuff comes from somewhere else like everything's always inspired by you know the environment but that hits you you love that you read about what the people who made that were inspired by like you go check that stuff out you you and then you start digging all so that's supposed to be your key to a, a better learning but i don't think nowadays they like the research they like to go on wikipedia for two seconds look at okay i know what you're talking about or watch someone's video talking about something <laughs> and say they've seen it after that we uh we were talking about a little bit about this uh, uh with the halloweenies guys about how one we, we do very deep dives on our podcast and part mm-hmm. of the fun of that is like i mean we could just go to wikipedia but wikipedia like we talked about with internet movie database, database is not always reliable but it's the the way it sends you down a rabbit hole and i'm a big fan of and i recommend anybody who's interested in you know reading about culture get us newspapers.com subscription 
mm-hmm. because that's key in Windy City Double Feature because you can actually look at articles that haven't been scanned online, stuff mm-hmm. that may have been forgotten. That's how we found that great letter about Optimus Prime Day, February twenty fourth. Don't forget about it uh, because. Like sometimes I say to myself, well, why didn't I get into this in my teenage years? And it's like, well, because you didn't have the world at your fingertips in your right. It was harder. If you wanted to get into a band, you had to get off your ass and you had to go to the record store. You had to buy that record. You couldn't just say, ah, let me check out a couple tunes of their sons. Right. So like the world we live in, a friend of mine who I, I work with at Rock Island Public House, he was like, it's so much, it was so much cooler when you had to find stuff. I'm like, well, that's true, but it's never going back to that. But no. I still think even with the internet at your hands, not enough people do all the due diligence, do all the research that they can before they christen themselves an expert. So yeah. it's good and bad at the same time. It's not as cool, yep. but it's also democratized pop culture and music and movies in that there's more people, more people have the access, but you still have to make the effort. You still have to sit down and put on, put that record on Spotify. You still have to sit down and pay the 99 cents to rent that movie on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then you can you know follow that journey uh, and who knows where it'll take you you might find your new favorite artist you might find a fun bit of trivia that's just fun at parties uh which i you know i love i love coming up with stuff like that well the fun thing i like is the the social media aspect of has anybody seen this any good it's like <laughs> you could literally click it and find out for yourself rather than a rando whose taste you don't know responding you know but the bullshit part about that, it's always some shit like John Carpenter's The Thing. You know, like those movie <laughs> polls. Like, one has to go. Like, which one do you like better? Like, Halloweenies listeners, you guys know the joke. Like, I love like, uh, uh, Evil Dead, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. I'll always, like, I love, we just talked about how I love the Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. I will always, I will always uh, quote tweet and say, shit movie. Yeah. Which is just tickles me to no end. Because then people get mad at me because they think I'm saying it's a shit movie. Well, you ask thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah, but it's such an innocuous, stupid question. What do you get enough likes? I don't know. I hate that dumb shit. Oh, you know, you you know what? People don't talk enough about what I just watched. Ah, oh, People man. don't talk enough about this popular movie I just watched that made tons of money and won awards. But I, I'm revealing all of the Halloweeny secrets here. But that's like a joke of ours that will totally do stuff. Like whenever we want to, when, when we think about a topic that we feel like is overly talked about like something like you and I both love Halloween, but like, mm-hmm. what more can we do? What more can we add to the conversation? Yeah, exactly. That? Yeah. But like to say something like we don't talk enough about John Carpenter's Halloween, that will get like a thousand fucking likes. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's so like, stupid. It's asinine. It, and we just sit there and we just sit there in our group chat and cackle about it. And I, I feel bad because like I think some people are just retweeting it because they really like the movie, but I, I don't know. I, uh, I also here's another one. Some shit that bothers me on the internet. It's right? like such uh, underrated, and I always go, uh, "Where's the official rating that it's under? Can you point me to that?" I'd uh, like to know. That's good. It's under underrated, uh, maybe underseen, underappreciated. Under, where's the rating? Like, and even then with under. I, it's like, is it really though? Like there's like a handful <laughs> of movies I can say, like truly like, Oh, you talk about like underrated or like, uh, what do you say? Like overlooked. It's like, People some have, movies like the are wrong ra- word. Yeah. Some movies are rated appropriately. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like some movies, the exact amount of people like that movie for the, for the right reasons. It, like, so it's not every piece of shit that you watch is an underappreciated classic. Because I don't you saw, crucify. Because you saw it when it was 11. Yeah. I don't put to pasture a whole group of people for some movie that I like. I, I will say like, oh, that one. I like it more than most. 
from what I you know can tell. Like I, I'll say that I won't like underrate. I'm like, well, uh, I like this movie. I've I've seen what people have said about it because you I did like research. Than that. You yeah. went down a rabbit hole. You, read, you, yeah. you looked it up. I've been and, around. Like, I don't forget. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you learn stuff like Sword and the Sorcerer, as we discussed yeah. about your other podcast. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, not, not yet. A lot of- <laughs> that preview. I, that event that you have coming up, yeah, um, sort of a, a movie like *Sword of Sorcerer*. Nobody talks about it now except a few cultists, but it was a huge hit when it came out in 1982. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big hit. Lasted at the box office for like five months in the top ten. Like, not easy. Not easy. Twin, Twin Peaks is one of those things, especially with like you know, I don't want to, I don't want to shit all over the young people, but guys, Twin Peaks was on a major network and everybody was talking about it. Everybody yeah. in America, it wasn't a, it, it, it developed the cult, but it was, it was not a cult thing when it came out. That motherfucker, it was a juggernaut. It was huge. Some t- I was, I was 10, 11 years old. I knew about it. Mm-hmm. If I knew yeah, about it exactly. at 11, it wasn't cool. <laughs> Some things surpass their cult status. Is what they they do. They they start as a cold item, and then time happens, and they pick up such a fault. Like Star Trek was a cult thing; it's no longer. But that's a great example. It was. No one would call it a cult item now, but it was a cult thing. I, you know, uh, on the on the flip side, Star Wars was always a very populous thing that everybody fucking liked from always. the jump. Except now, it eighty four to ninety eight. It it fell out absolutely. I was there. I was still into it. That was my fandom. Was that during that time? Oh, my, the last be- the last time it was cool to be a Star Wars fan was probably 1995 before they released that new run of uh, Power to Force figures. After yeah. that, it, it 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 was all over. That was la- <laughs> like I say. Like I still keep up. I, I'm always going to be a sucker for Star Wars yep. live action. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked Boba Fett. I love the Mandalorian. Um, Here, Mike. This is why I say. Like I'm a. I, I I hate going. It feels icky to go. I'm a Star Wars fan nowadays. But it really does. I, I totally not cool. Totally not fucking cool at all. I love I love Star Wars in my own way. That's what I say. I have my own. Everybody does, but I yeah. love Star Wars in my own way. It's very important to me. Always. Will I will be. have a. I'm going to have opinions on things mm-hmm. that you might not agree with, uh, but it's because I grew up with like. It grew up with like I grew. I literally grew up with it from yeah. out of the womb. Uh, it's been my favorite movie. The the original film, 1997 mm-hmm. or 1977 Star Wars. Like, like not the franchise. That movie, that one movie means a lot to me and it will forever be my favorite movie. Well, of all it's time. so big that like I I when making like, you know, could you give me a top such and such movies of all time? I'm like, do I have to lift Star Wars? That should just I, be like given, right? <laughs> well, that's but, what, like, yeah, what it feels t- weird. I have to say it. But you know what, though? The reason I do mention it now is because I like I, I like to make the point. I'm not talking about the Empire Strikes Back, which I love. I'm not talking about Return of the Jedi, which I love. The movie called talk- Star Wars. <laughs> I am talking about the, the ninth, as I always have to, you know, preface the 1977 original because it's truly a work of art. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of cinema history. It changed the way movies were made. It changed the way movies yep. were seen. So whether or not you like all the kind of nerdery that surrounds it now, you can't deny if you're a cinephile or a film lover that. This is an, a monumental achievement in filmmaking. Yep. And I always say, like, it, where we are is like film people, pop culture discussers. We all like Star Wars. OK, but beyond that, where who are we? That's how we determine. I know there's the hipster, cool people that. Yeah, you're too cool for Star Wars, but like I always is like we all love Star Wars, but now what? So what's your next thing? 
thank you for bringing your cheap trick ex- expertise of a, a, a blind spot in my musical listening. Um, I will say, like, I really f- it felt fun there for a minute because I was tr- I was like, I am the expert in the room on this. Like, it's as take far it away, as bartending, Mike. <laughs> as far as as far as bartending goes, like nobody can touch my margaritas, and mm-hmm. as far as cheap trick knowledge goes, very few. People can touch me. So I got those two things going for me, which is nice. All right. Excellent. And before we head out for the weekend here, please let everyone know where they can keep up with you and all your happenings. Follow me on Twitter at Mike Vanderbilt. Follow me on Instagram at MA Vanderbilt. Add me on Facebook if you still do that. I'll be happy to add you back. And then, uh, of course, check out the Halloweenies podcast, the Windy City Double Feature Picture Show podcast, and Playboy uh, revealing culture, revealing culture through the men's magazine. I am exhausted right now. <laughs> but yeah, and then look for me at the AV Club. Right. I still do. I'm still doing news over there. I'm going to take the money and run. All right. Hey, yeah. Uh, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon Porky UHD, written work at com. The show returns all new next week for a very special week long edition of Old Space Show. Uh, and until, But until then, stay film positive. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.